Thank you for tuning into the Short Stacks. I'm Lisa Quintero, Young Adult Librarian. And I'm Nick Barron, patron and sometimes volunteer. This is the show where we talk to you about what we've been reading, listening to, or watching. But first... Library news. So we have quite a few events coming up this month. It's hard to believe that it's May already. Uh, but yeah, we have a few author visits happening, um, our normal events like book club and art cart and things like that, but I will go ahead and go through the list here. So the first author visit that we have coming up is on Monday, May 10th, and I believe her name, I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced, I think it's Jana Slor, and that one is a book that takes place in River West during the recession. So if you are interested in a local author's work, check that out. The link for the Zoom talk is on our calendar, shorewoodlibrary.org. Then on the 11th, we have Family Fun Night to Go Kits, and we'll also have Rhyme Time Tuesday that morning with Miss Heidi. And then we'll be wrapping up the Shorewood Architecture Reflex Village History Series um, that evening. And if you're interested in that, that's a program that you have to register for via the calendar. On the 12th, we'll be having Art Cart to Go. And then the following week, on the 17th, we have an author visit with Nick Hayes. He wrote a book called Frank Lloyd Wright's Forgotten House, How an Omission Transformed the Architect's Legacy. And he will be having a conversation with Catherine Bolt, who is the educational outreach docent at Tallison, um, which is one of Frank Lloyd Wright's buildings that's here in Wisconsin. I believe he lived there for several years. Register for that one for the Zoom link via our calendar as well, and that's co-sponsored with Boswell Book Company. And then, let's see, on the 19th, we have Art Cart to go, as always. And then on the 20th, we have Storytime Online that morning. And then we have the AM Book Club at 11 a.m. with Paley. The book this time is The Dearly Beloved by Kara Wall. And it looks like it is a historical book taking place in 1950 to 1970. Uh, And it is a story of friendship. And then finally... On the 21st, we have the Adult Take and Make, which I don't think has been determined yet. I think it's uh, it's still being planned out. So not exactly sure what Angie has planned for us, but looking forward to seeing it. They've been very popular, um, and I know we've been, can't keep them on the shelves, you know. So they go out and they, they go, like, within a day or two, so. Very good. Yeah, so other than that, uh, we've added some more chairs to the library. Um, We've opened our study rooms up again, though we're only allowing one person per study room at this time in order to maintain social distancing. And um, our computers have gone up to a two-hour limit again. So, you know, like I said last time, things are slowly going back to to how they were before. And, you know, we hope to keep making strides as numbers of COVID in the area go down. All right, let's move on to... From the Stacks. So yeah, what did you read this time, Nick? We both read graphic novels for this episode, um, and I will let Nick tell us a little bit about what he read. Yeah, so um, uh, I was going through the graphic novel stack, as one does, and uh, I was looking for uh, cyberpunky type stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and just so, to clarify, you were looking through the graphic novel stack at the library? At the Shorewood Library. And you were looking through the adult stack, the young adult stack. Which stacks were you looking through? The adult stack. Okay. <laughs> Yes, so I was going through the, the adult stack, and I was looking for uh, cyberpunky type stuff, and um, I almost pulled Ghost in the Shell off the shelf, even though I've seen the movie, I've never read the manga, um, and so I was I was looking at that, but it, it seemed seemed uh, too thick for, <laughs> for what I uh, was looking for at the time. But I pulled two things off the shelf. I pulled an altered carbon uh, graphic novel off the shelf mm-hmm. um, that I am yet to read, but I pulled Motor Crush. And Motor Crush, to give context, uh, there's a gaming group uh, that Lisa and I play in, and uh, in that gaming group, it's a cyberpunk game called Neon Black. And uh, 
my character rides a motorcycle. And this jumped out at me off the shelf because it had a cyberpunky type vibe. And it had a picture of a lady with a spiked uh, cricket bat or two by four. It's hard to tell sometimes. <laughs> and uh, uh, riding a motorcycle. And I was like, this is going to give me inspiration. Mm-hmm. And so it's by Brendan Fletcher, Cameron Stewart, and Babs Tarr, or created by the three of them. And it is the story of a young woman of color who, uh, who rides a motorcycle in competitive races. Mm-hmm. But in order to in order to give it that futuristic cyberpunky type vibe, there's definitely like rival motorcycle gangs that have colorful costumes, like the movie The Warriors from the '70s, okay. or uh, or gangs you would expect to see in Escape from New York. Uh-huh. Um, but at the same time, it has the same. Um, if you've ever watched uh, Veronica Mars. It has this, you know, slightly noir uh, daughter of a of a uh, of a single dad. The dad has a very, you know, he's a, a patriarch, but he's the mom, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, he's, he fills both roles. He yeah. fills both roles, and he's he's very like protective, but in a very mothering sort of way, mm-hmm. and so. When the book starts out, um, it starts off in a very like, you know, like, hey, this this is a lady that races and she also participates in illegal uh, competitive racing at night. But by day is is in uh, legal, legal uh, competitive ra- uh, motorcycle racing. Um, and then you start to see layers build. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I've read like the first issue of this. I haven't read the whole thing. And I feel like. I recall, the, 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 don't she and her dad run, like, a motorcycle repair shop? They do. Okay. And I feel like I also recall some sort of weird, like, drug being involved, but I don't remember if it was given to the motorcycle or given to the human riding the motorcycle. That's, that's <laughs> one of the things that they don't make clear at first, uh-huh. because it is a, an illegal accelerant that people also sometimes take. Okay. So it is a drug for the motorcycle, but it is also a drug for humans as well. Uh, um, okay. Which uh, harkens back to there was an eighties, an eighties movie that I remember that had competitive competitive car, um, like car street racing, uh-huh. and there was like a pu- there was a bunch of uh, you know like typical like eighties um, uh, uh, punk rocker types that were. Um, when they were portrayed in the 80s, they were like total nihilists. Uh-huh. Um, and of course, one of the punk rockers drank ant- antifreeze. Okay. Um, don't do that. Yeah, no. Don't ever do that. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it definitely pulls a lot of elements from a lot of, a lot of stuff that I've read and watched in the past. Okay. And pulls it into one. Okay. But yeah, and uh, it, as, as the story evolves, uh, it turns out that that uh, the main character is a queer person of color. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, it it gets very, like the layers start to, of the illegal activity and then and the involvement with gangs combined with um, her mysterious past mm-hmm. um, because you end up finding out that she, she is adopted and... Um, um, you don't know, like, the dad refuses to tell the story. Spoilers, Nick. That's, 
that's as spoilery as I'm going to get because it does reveal more in these first five issues. But okay. uh, yeah, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to revisit it. Like I said, I only read the first issue when I uh, when it first came in, um, and I at the time I had like a stack of books, and I, I didn't really get that into it. But yeah, it sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah, I I, I generally tend to uh, like media with you know tough female characters, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, she's 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 very tough, and uh, but at the same time, you know, you you get the uh, unlike superhero stories where you know they're they're you know super powered on the outside but soft on the inside. Mm-hmm. You know, she is not super powered. You mm-hmm. know, it's a, a a comic about a a, a person who who yeah, they're just they're just a a, a normal tough lady. Yeah. So. Tough on the outside, but soft on the inside. Yes. <laughs> yes. Cool. Do you think you'll you'll read more of it or? Oh yeah, no. I I, I read the uh, read the uh, this this compiled the first five issues, and yes. I'm like, yeah, no. I I would like to continue the story. Cool. I want to know what happens. You want to know next. what happens? All right. So yeah, yeah. That's the it's the first volume of the trade paperback. Um, and yeah, we have it at short. It's called Motor Crush. And it is in the adult graphic novel section. Oh, and one thing that I didn't I, I didn't say is that uh, it has it's a a, a very colorful art style, um, and uh, it has uh, because it's in a uh, cyberpunk type future. Uh, there are on every page there are things where uh, there is a drone. There is a drone that. Uh, is provided by the professional racing uh, organization WGP mm-hmm. um, that follows the the main character around. And oh yeah, I think I remember that. Like kind of like reality TV, like it, it just kind of tracks all their moves and. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's where their income comes from. So she she has to live stream at least a certain portion of the day, and it um, you know they portray it as being this miserable, draining experience. Uh-huh. Um, but the neat thing about it is at the top of each page. Um, it'll say WGPN on course info pop, and then it'll, you know, give a bunch of stats, um, regarding, you know, what, what you're seeing or what's going on okay. or bits of information. Kind of like the old VH1 behind the music when you would get like random little bubbles on the yes. screen where it would it, tell you like, so-and-so, you know, recorded this in this year and this was a number one hit. Yep. <laughs> exactly that sort of thing. Like, um, uh, A-frame cycle bar, uh, eight Larry, so it gives an address and then happy hour special. Touch here for coupon. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's got it's got that. Yeah, that futuristic, you know, technology is is permeating our lives even more so than it is today. Exactly. Um, interesting. Yeah, cool. I enjoyed it. Tell me about what you read. So I also read a graphic novel that is also found in the adult collection at the Sherwood Library. Um, and it is called Bix by Scott Chandler. It is the autobiography of Bix Spiderbeck, who was a jazz musician in the 1920s. Um, and I was curious about Bix because um, I went to a school in the Quad Cities, which is four cities on the Iowa-Illinois border. Rock Island and Moline on the Illinois side, and Davenport and Bettendorf on the uh, Iowa side. And uh, so I, I went to school there for four years for undergrad, and then I lived there for a couple years afterwards, and I had quite a few friends in college who were really into track, and every year there was this huge race called the Bix, and eventually, like, I learned that it was named after this jazz musician, and I was like, that's weird, um, <laughs> and then, like, there was this whole festival around this person, and I had no idea who this person was, and... You know, over time, I learned that Big Spiderbeck was a was a jazz musician from Davenport, Iowa, 
and but I still didn't know a lot about him. And so when I when this came out, uh, this came out last year. Um, I I ordered it and I was excited to read it because I've always been curious about him. He is a musician who is credited for being influential in the formation of jazz. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, apparently was somebody who, from a very young age, when he was about six or seven, could just hear a tune and automatically play it on the piano. Um, and so he originally learned how to play music on the piano, but eventually he became known for playing the cornet. And he ended up playing with uh, the Paul Whitehead Orchestra, and um, he ended up playing with several other large groups, and then he also recorded some stuff on his own. He he played music with people like Louis Armstrong, you know, a lot of, a lot of the jazz greats, and he... He had potential, but he had a, a very big drinking problem. Mm. Um, and I was actually listening to an interview this morning with Louis Armstrong about Bix. And he said, you know, one of the things that he found was that he said that Bix was somebody who couldn't say no to people. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, you know, he said that the reason that he survived on the road was because, you know, he knew when to say no mm -hmm. and he knew when to say goodnight. Yeah. Um, and he said that Bix did not know when to say no, and he did not know when to say goodnight. And so, you know, so Bix ended up doing a lot of drinking, and ultimately he died when he was 28 years old. Um, and, you know, he he had a lot of potential. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting reading his story. His parents weren't very supportive of his jazz career. Um, you know, it was the 1920s. This was music for you know, at the time, consider music for black people, um, and they didn't consider it proper music. And so after he he left his parents' house, he never really went back very often. Mm -hmm. um, he did end up going back for a little bit because he went into, like, rehab for a little while, but um, ultimately ended up going back on the road after after being in rehab. And, yeah, from, from what this person gathered, because Scott Chandler read several biographies of Bix before putting together his own his graphic novel, his biography. And he said, you know, that there's there's differing views as to as to what his childhood was like, but, you know, overall, um, he got the impression that that his parents didn't really support his career. And, you mm -hmm. know, I guess some biographers have said that, you know, that that's not true, that his parents did support his career and things like that. But um, you can kind of put two and two together when somebody's you know, abusing alcohol and drugs and things like that. Something at some point wasn't going right. Mm. So yeah, so he uh, he was one of three children, um, and he his older brother was in the military, and that's how he got exposed to jazz. Mm -hmm. And plus, he lived in Davenport, and back in the the you know turn of the century, uh, a lot of boats would go up and down the Mississippi River, and so they would have jazz musicians playing on the boats, and that's how he like got exposed to jazz and um, a lot of the boats would leave from Davenport and then, um, you know, you could hear him playing along the river. And so that's how he started playing. He started playing music on some of the boats along the river and then ended up going to places like Chicago, Minneapolis and, you know, all over the Midwest. And then ended up going beyond that. And he actually, when he died, he was living in New York and then the, uh, his mom went and collected his body to bring him back to Davenport because he's buried in Davenport. But yeah. The, the graphic novel is, is beautiful. It is, um, because it's the story of a musician, the author tried to make the images kind of follow a rhythm. Um, and because it's about a jazz musician, there are sections where the images are kind of in a straight horizontal line. And then there's sections where they kind of bounce all over the page. 
Um, and the first half of the book is all just images. There is no text. And then in the second half, we get more text kind of, um, you know, getting an idea of what his life was like once he started playing with like the, the Paul Whiteman Orchestra and with some other bands um, and kind of getting an idea of that. But even then, still, there's not a whole lot of words. It's mostly images. Mm -hmm. um, it is done in like a grayish blue kind of color. So, you know, it conveys a certain sadness. Um, I joke because I have a penchant for picking what I call very depressing graphic novels because they are all in these gray, <laughs> gray tones. If, if, if you come home with, with, with a graphic novel and I see lots of cyan on the cover, I'm like, yep, I, I know what to expect. Um, but yeah, yeah, he apparently, he failed out of high school. And this was interesting to me because being from the Chicago area, he went to Lake Forest Academy, which is in Lake Forest, which is the northern suburb of Chicago. And at the time, Lake Forest Academy was an all-boys school, and it was a college preparatory. And so he was sent off there because he failed out of high school because he was getting involved with jazz and doing a lot of drinking, and he had been arrested. And so his parents were like, all right, we're sending you away. And while he was at Lake Forest, instead of doing schoolwork, he was constantly being caught sneaking in after having taken the train down to Chicago because Lake Forest is off of one of the major train lines that goes all the way into the city. And he would regularly take the like skip classes and take the train down into the city uh, at night, watch, you know, jazz musicians play, join in on playing, mm -hmm. you know, with jazz groups on the cornet or on the piano, mm -hmm. and then take the train back to Lake Forest and, you know, skip his classes in the morning or show up drunk. Um, and so ultimately he ended up getting expelled from, from Lake Forest Academy. Um, he was never somebody who was really into, you know, having to do things other than music. Like his passion was music. Um, apparently he also applied to the University of Iowa's music school and was accepted, but, you know, ultimately decided not to go because of all the other general education requirements that he would be required to complete. And he just from everything that, you know, his biographers have said, like he just was not somebody who had any interest in anything other than music. And he would spend his time, you know, tapping out beats and, and doing that sort of thing. And, and he just, he couldn't care less about, uh, about uh, the academic portion of, of his education. So, so yeah, it was really interesting. Um, and I actually ended up listening to a few of his recordings Um because I was curious as to why he's considered to be so influential. Um, he mixed a lot of classical music with jazz, and um, he, I guess, was known for a more, because, um, like, his contemporary was Louis Armstrong, and Louis Armstrong played the trumpet and the cornet, whereas Bix played, you know, the cornet and the piano. But Bix was known for more, like, quiet, contemplative jazz, whereas um, Louis Armstrong was known for what was called hot jazz, which is, you know, fast-paced, mm -hmm. more upbeat and so, yeah, he, he composed several songs that he recorded, and then he also recorded several songs with the groups that he, the various groups that he was a part of, um, and some of them were pieces that he composed himself, and some of them were, you know, well-known pieces that were already in existence, but, mm -hmm. yeah. Very interesting. I, I, did, did they show what neighborhood that he would go to when he was at Lake Forest? Uh, they showed pictures, but it was, it's hard to tell, you know, you can see the bottoms of like the, the L tracks and things like that, okay. but, um, and they show the names of businesses, but I doubt that some of these yeah. businesses are still there, you know. I was um, just, just curious if it's Chicago, like Milwaukee has a neighborhood called Brownsville. 
and uh, um, that was a hotbed of of music and culture for the uh, black community in Chicago. So I was just curious if uh, if that's where he played. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. He some of the famous songs that he composed. He composed in a mix in a mist, which was uh, performed by uh, Bing Crosby as the singer. Um, he also composed the Davenport Blues and quite a few others, but those were some of the. I don't remember if I was saying Paul Whitehead or Paul Whiteman. It's Paul Whiteman. It's interesting, too, because some of the images kind of show, you know, what his life was like as a musician, because it's a lot of times you see him playing with the band, um, but sometimes, you know, he's not showing up to play with the band because he's passed out drunk mm. at home. Um, and apparently his parents' house is still in existence, the house where he grew up in mm. Davenport, Iowa, um, and people can, you know go and visit it. I believe it's put on the National uh, Historic Register out there. And I'll have to check it out next time I'm out in the Quad Cities. But yeah, when he died, he was living in an apartment in New York City. And he would play music in his apartment at all hours to both the delight and also the great annoyance of his neighbors. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, his landlord said that he came knocking on his door one night and so that there were two people under his bed with knives that were trying to kill him. And his landlord went into the, into the apartment and there was nobody there. And uh, according to this and other um, biographers, Bix then collapsed in, in the landlord's arms and, and died. Uh, the landlord went to get a doctor, but by the time they came back, he was, he was gone. Um, and they believe he died from, you know, uh, brain swelling and a variety of other health issues that he had due to his alcoholism. Yeah. Yeah, it looks it looks like a a very interesting book. The art style is is nice, and the I I had commented when you were flipping through it about all of the white space, and then you explained to me how how there was a rhythm to uh, to where the images were placed, and I thought that was kind of a neat concept. Yeah, like you know the the happier times, um, you see the images kind of bouncing all over the page, and then some of the sadder times, you know, you see the images kind of dropping down the page like a, like a ladder going down and then yep. some of the the regular times you see you know everything's just in a straight horizontal line yep. um yeah and I, some s- of the, I saw that there were some pages where where the images get very sparse yeah and then in some of the pages um you know you see like where he's playing music you'll see a variety of images all over the page yep. um kind of chaotic because yep. you know jazz. jazz can be chaotic um yeah, yeah. so so it's it's it tell it tells tells his biography while also being a work of art in and of itself. Yes, yes, um, yeah. I would recommend it, um, even though it is sad. It is not as sad as some of the other gray graphic novels <laughs> that I have brought home. And you know, I feel like the the grayish the cyan color um, makes sense here. One because it's sad, but also because you know it's a it's a historical thing. So um, you could have a lot of color for some of these things, but if, you know, all, a lot of the images are of him playing clubs at night, are of him outside of clubs at night, are of him sitting by the river watching the boats, um, and most of it is stuff that is occurring at night, so, like, that makes sense that, you know, there would be kind of a little bit of a of a more shadowy mm. and darker look to it. Yeah, you know, I'm going to go on a slight tangent, uh-huh. uh, because uh, I was just, just talking about this with some, uh, some gaming friends on Twitter. Okay. And uh, uh, with role-playing games, the 
the art in the 70s and 80s is very different than the art today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, somebody, somebody had, had said, you know, I don't know what it is, but there's something that I love about the art in the 70s and 80s. But I can't put my finger on it. And I was, I, I have thought a lot about this. Uh-huh. And for me, it's because um, the art in that era, because they didn't have access to color, mm-hmm. um, it, it was too expensive. Yeah. It's not that they didn't have yeah, access. Yeah, they had access to color. Yeah, yes. It wasn't the dark ages. Yes, no. But, it, but color was expensive. And yeah. so the interior printing, art was, yeah. was, always, yeah. was always black and white. And it was like, it was a lot of art commissioned from artists that were up and coming. And so... Um, it's very gritty and kind of rough around the edges. Mm-hmm. And so there is this um, combination of it being uh, very, you know, hard contrast, black and white, and being very gritty. And now all the art is full of color. And also in that era, you know, people weren't drawn as these, like, you know, massive heroes vanquishing their enemies. Instead, it was very, you know, kind of, it came from pulp and noir. And so it had this very kind of like, I don't want to say sleazy, but um, just like like everybody was grimier <laughs> um, uh, type tone to the heroes, and so so it's it's amazing. Just like with with watching a movie in black and white, you um, put a, a scene from the past, um, like when we started Lovecraft Country um, just recently. Mm-hmm. They started that first episode in black and white, and it immediately takes you back in time. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the art in the early D&D books that when you see art like that today, it, it just evokes a certain level of mystery and pulpiness that current art does not. Mm-hmm. And so my my tangent is, is that art very much can set tone yeah. and feel to anything that you do with it in this that cyan, it automatically sets the tone mm. of what this graphic novel is going to be like. Yep. And like I said, for some reason, I keep picking these. And then I'm like, oh, oh, great. I brought home another depressing one. But so far, they've all been good books. They've just, I just need to, I need to pick some more stuff with color. Yes. And a, a, a little quick side note. Which, Motor Crush. Motor Crush has a lot of color. In yeah. It. Motor Crush does have a lot of color. Um, but yeah, I was just going to joke. I'm pretty sure that the version of Pierre Doesn't Care, which we've talked about in the children's book episode, uh-huh. um, which is not actually the title, I don't think, but you know what I'm talking yeah. about. I believe that is a cyan cover, except for like a little splash of yellow. Yep, because that was a book that was like, I think that art was, it was Maurice Sendak and that was, yeah, like 70s. So yep. um, again, but, you know, the color color was expensive. So, But yeah, but, but my point being is that it had that cyan <laughs> and... Pierre, he didn't care, and he got eaten by the lion. Yes, it's it it's it all comes together. Yes, it does all come together. All right, well, thank you for listening. Uh, if you have any questions or comments for our hosts, you can email us at shorenstacks at gmail You can find us on Podbean, Spotify, or iTunes. And as always, thank you for listening, and be well. The Short Stacks is produced by Lisa Quintero and Nick Barron for the Short Public Library. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incompetech.com. The song is called Ice Flow. <laughs>